before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of podcasts including interviews with Dominique Boise-Gilliard, an author of Rethinking Incarceration, A Place at the Table, featuring Maggie Kane, and Amy Julia Becker, author of White Picket Fences. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guest for this week's episode is a remarkable writer, speaker, and activist. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove is the author of Reconstructing the Gospel, Strangers at My Door, The Awakening of Hope, The Wisdom of Stability, and The New Monasticism. And as if that wasn't enough, he's co-authored a book with Reverend Dr. William Barber and the wildly popular book, Common Prayer, A Liturgy of the Ordinary Radicals. Jonathan, thank you for joining the conversation. It's so good to get to talk to you. All right. So my research team, and by my research team, I mean just me alone, uh, it tells me <laughs> that, uh, that you're from North Carolina. What part of North Carolina are you from? Stokes County. Born and raised in Stokes County, which is... Uh, North of Winston Salem, out in Tobacco Country, just uh, just down the road from Mayberry. Well, I know exactly. I I hate the fact that uh, for the last twenty some odd years we've lived right down the road from each other. Now you're in Durham. I just left Clayton, North Carolina, uh, to move to Louisiana. But uh, I know where you're from very well. I'm very familiar with that area. Well, it's it's beautiful country. My so, mama, she uh, when she was a uh, you know, uh, in her late fifties, uh, she got a chance to go to Ireland. She had always wanted to go to Ireland and she came back. Uh, they were over there for a week. She came back and, uh, uh, I said, how was it mom? And she said, it was so beautiful. It looks so much like, uh, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't have to go far, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, the other thing about North Carolina for people that you know, have never been to the state, uh, or never had the privilege of living there especially where you're from, you know, you're easily two hours to uh, some of the most beautiful mountains in the world. Now, probably about three hours or four hours for you to get to the beach, but we were it was two hours to the beach, two hours to the mountains. And it was just, 
uh, fantastic. That's right. Yeah, right in the middle. That's where I live now. Actually, I'm in Durham, North Carolina, right here in the middle of the state now. So how did a kid from North Carolina end up at Eastern University? Well, I grew up in Soaks County in the Baptist Church in the in the 80s. That's Southern Baptist. Um, it, you know, it was the heyday of the moral majority movement. And uh, I don't accuse my people of being too political. Um, you know, most folks were just living their life and getting by. But I was an ambitious kid, and I, you know, I wanted to do great things for Jesus. And in in that context, and in my imagination of it, I thought that meant becoming president of the United States. Um, so I was trying to do that as a young person. Um, got appointed uh, as a page to Senator Strom Thurmond from South Carolina, and was working up in D.C. When I kind of had this uh, uh, crisis conversion, where <laughs> I realized that um, the Jesus that my people had introduced me to and that I'd gotten to know in the scriptures that we memorized growing up uh, really uh, ran into some real tensions with the power politics that uh, that I was kind of running headlong into. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, that, that was really the only model I knew. So, um, so I, I went back home and I was talking to my pastor about it and, uh, he said, you know, there's this guy, Tony Campolo, he's going to be preaching down at Wake Chapel at Wake Forest. You should go hear him. And uh, he said, you know, he thinks differently about these things. So um, I went and heard him. And uh, he said he was a professor at Eastern University or Eastern College back then. So I said, uh, I want to go to school there. And that's how I ended up at Eastern, which was a gift because that's where I met my wife and uh, a lot of good friends and teachers who've, um, yeah, helped me to imagine uh being a different kind of baptist well eastern's certainly doing something right i mean i think of eastern i certainly think of of you and tony campolo and shane claiborne and brian stevens and now uh, peter ends does some work with them so mm -hmm. um, you know i mean i think what i found there was a kind of a, a kind of evangelicalism that took jesus seriously took the things that Jesus said seriously, um, uh, took seriously the, the evangelical tradition of the 19th century, you know, the, the folks who had gotten involved in the abolition movement and, and women's suffrage and those kind of justice issues, and was, was willing to be conversant with those issues in the present uh, and with, you know, impacted people who were, um, who were dealing with those things in a way that much of white evangelicalism uh, hasn't been. And I think um, I think that uh, that anytime white folks just listen to white folks, uh, it, it becomes dangerous because we we start to uh, see our reflection in the scriptures re rather than be challenged by them. I can't think of a single time in white history that that's ever happened. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's happened in the past and it's happening today. <laughs> so it's something we it's something we certainly need to grapple with. So you have this um, this enlightening experience, if you will, of other forms of being Baptist or other forms of being Christ followers. You go to Eastern and then you return back home to North Carolina to go to Duke Divinity School. Tell us about that experience. Well, um, I went to Duke because I, because we'd come to Durham and um, Durham. Uh, we really felt like was a, a, a place to uh, to go so we could settle. 
because uh, Durham gave us an opportunity to really root ourselves in the Black Baptist Church. So those are the folks that I learned a lot from over at Duke, uh, the scholars of that tradition. I call it the Mount Level School of Theology because Bill Turner, who taught it or was at Duke for 50 years, um, uh, pastored a church uh, at, while he taught preaching. And uh, many of the great black theologians and biblical scholars who've been at Duke over the years have also been members of that church. So Willie Jennings, who I think is one of the greatest theologians alive, was one of my teachers, uh, Jay Carter and um, uh, folks like that. Uh, Ebony Marshall Terman came through a little later and I learned a lot from her. But uh, anyway, there, there there is that sort of academic center of uh, um, black theology that has been influential to me. And uh, even before I had left North Carolina to, uh, to go to Eastern, I had connected with uh, William Barber, who uh, also studied at Duke um, with Dr. Turner and others, and was by that time pastoring and kind of took me under his wing as a, uh, as a young white brother who uh, wanted to learn this uh, liberating uh, gospel that the black church has been uh, uh, holding for us and sharing freely with uh, anybody who would have it. So I, I think being here has, has been a, a space to bring together those uh, both academic and church and movement worlds. Um, yeah, and and to be in a neighborhood where all of that hits the ground because um, this has been a historically black community as, as, as long as it's been here and uh, for a long time was a service community to Duke University, and so um, people saw what was happening over there on, uh, as they still say, the plantation, uh, you know, in a different way than um, than I would have seen it if, if, if I were just coming here, you know, to a great institution of learning uh, to kind of, you know, receive the wisdom. It, it gives you a perspective on what you're learning, I guess. Mm. Now, in, in 2003, you and your wife, Leah, founded uh, Root by House in Durham. Uh, tell us the story behind its formation. Well, um, so we had, we had been introduced to uh, the Jesus of the Freedom Church of the Poor um, by people on the streets up in Philadelphia and in Christian communities up there. And then 9-11 happened, and um, the uh, kind of spokespeople for evangelicalism certainly uh, said, you know, uh, we're going to war on terror. We're going to support our country. We're going to do whatever the president says. But um, there's actually people on the street, uh, veterans who had who had been in Vietnam and uh, had seen quite a bit of what war looks like on the ground, who even then were questioning, um, you know, how Christian is it really to to unconditionally support um uh, uh, the wars that that the the nation declares, and um, and so we got involved with a group called the Christian Peacemaker Teams, and went to Iraq when um, the United States said that we were going to uh, um, occupy Iraq in the spring of '03, and we were there at the beginning of that occupation. We, we were um, uh, welcomed in by the Iraqi government before it fell, and had a chance to uh, kind of see what um, the the so-called liberating bombs actually looked like to the people who were living there. And it, it was a horrifying experience to be on the other end of our nation's bombs. Uh, 
but it was also a revelation of um, uh, what we as a people look like uh, to the rest of the world. And in the midst of that, we were really overwhelmed by the hospitality that we received from people who knew that uh, as Americans, we were their enemies. And uh, we were in a car accident while we were there, uh, just outside of a town called Rutba. And uh, three folks on our team uh, were very seriously injured in that car accident. Uh, and uh, it, as it happened three days before, the United States military had bombed their hospital, so they didn't have a place where they could care for people in an emergency, uh, except this kind of makeshift clinic that they had set up in a house. And the doctor there saved our friends' lives. And um, when I asked him uh, what we owed him for his service, he said, you don't owe us anything. Please just go tell people what's really happening here in your country. So uh, we came back telling that story of, uh, you know, the people who were supposed to be our enemy saving our friends and realized that that really is the good Samaritan story that Jesus tells of the, uh, you know, the Samaritan who stops by the roadside and uh, cares for the uh, Jewish man who was beat up and thrown in the ditch. And um, at the end of that story, Jesus says, go and do likewise. So we felt like we had lived the gospel story and Jesus was speaking to us. And so Rutba House um, became a, a hospitality house here in the summer of 2003, where we've tried for these 15 years to um, to live into that hospitality that was, was shown to us by the good Iraqis at Rutba. We need to pause and tell you about this week's presenting sponsor. Ministering to Ministers Foundation has been offering hope for ministers and their families in tough situations and help through health promotion, intervention, and renewal for over 23 years. Healthy transition wellness retreats for ministers and spouses are currently offered in Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, and Wisconsin. By offering spiritual, emotional, physical, social, and legal assistance to ministers in all faith groups, our hope is to help them develop healthy relationships, productive work environments, and worthy transitions. For more information about the MTM ministry, contact us at 804-594-2556 or visit mtmfoundation.org for more details. You know, we talk a lot about uh, compassion uh, and love and service um, within the Christian movement, but what we kind of mean by that is compartmentalized time by which we dedicate to that. But what you have mm -hmm. created is a, a 24 seven um, safe space for hospitality. So, so what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis for you and your family? Well, our family lives here together with um, other folks who come to be part of the community. And this community is our extended family. So we've had people come home from prison, come home from uh, uh, hospital. Uh, you know, um, we live in this uh, city of medicine, they call it now. Uh, it's kind of funny. Durham was built on tobacco money and tobacco gave you know, the whole Southeast cancer. And now people come here to get treated for their cancer. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the city of medicine. So uh, it's kind of like the pool at Bethsaida in the scriptures, you know, people, people rush to the pool to be healed. And uh, a lot of people, you know, don't have many resources to start with. And by the time that's done, uh, they have even less. So, uh, so we've had folks, you know, who've become 
homeless basically through you know uh the being impoverished by disease and um and folks who've you know been part of this whole um um mass incarceration thing that's happened in uh, African American communities like this for decades and um and folks, you know, who've ended up on the streets for various reasons have uh, occasionally come to stay here with us, too. And uh, we've tried to build a community together where we can each, you know, um, bring what we have to the community and to the table. And we pray together in the mornings and we, uh, you know, eat dinner together in the evenings. We meet together <clears throat> once a week and, you know, talk about the the business of the community and the neighborhood and, you know, what, what role we have to play and things that are happening here. So, um, uh, you know, we, we ended up learning from the monastic tradition quite a bit because it turned out Baptists don't have a lot of experience of sharing life in community, but these Benedictine monks up in Minnesota reached out to us and said, Hey, if you have any questions, feel free to ask. We've been at this 1500 years. <laughs> so we, uh, we we we've you know learned from the rule of Benedict and from people who've been living communally in that tradition, um, and that you know those rhythms of praying together and eating together and meeting together they kind of go all the way back to the rule of Benedict. That's that's how that um, uh, prayer resource that you mentioned earlier came to be. Common prayer grew out of you know our community and other communities that we're in relationship with, just trying to figure out how we could shape a life of prayer together in the you know, long tradition of uh, a fixed hour prayer that's been part of monastic communities. What's the biggest challenge for living in an intentional community with others? It's all the other people. That's the biggest challenge. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the greatest gift, you know. Uh, but, you know, people are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, you know, um, uh, all of us have God stamped on us, and that can shine out sometimes and sometimes uh it doesn't <laughs> sometimes people are just frustrating so uh yeah i think the other people are the challenge and the gift of community mm. what's the greatest joy um you know if i close my eyes and think about the 15 years here and the uh the moments that i really have seen God um, present to us. Uh, I, a lot of those scenes are around the dinner table. Um, this just, you know, cross section of people who wouldn't have any other good reason to be together except God brought us together. And you've got, you know, uh, uh, a man in his 60s who, you know, crossed the border from Mexico when he was 12 years old and has been working in fields, you know, picking food uh, all over this country for decades. Um, you know, came here because he got lung cancer, probably because of what he breathed in those fields and didn't have anywhere else to go. And, you know, he's he's there telling us about the food that we're eating. And, you know, there's a brother who grew up in the neighborhood who, you know, spent a couple decades in prison because of the stuff he got caught up in when he was young. Uh, but he's here telling us about what this place was like 30 years ago and uh, talking to, you know, my kids about what it was like when he was going to the same school that they go to now. And, uh, you know, and occasionally some, you know, middle class, well-educated, 
business person stops by and sits down for dinner with this crowd. And I just, you know, there've been these moments where I've looked around and said, you know, there's nowhere else where, where um, this cross section of humanity gets to be together. Uh, or there are very few places where that happens and I'm grateful to get to be part of it. Now, earlier this year, you released Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. Now, you do not need my endorsement with names like William Barber and Richard Rohr, uh, you know, sitting in the front sleeve of this book. Um, But this book confronts the big fat pink elephant in the room, namely that white evangelical American Christianity is carrying a loaded weapon of discrimination, Islamophobia, homophobia, and systematic racism. And you wrote, many white people would rather do something to address the symptoms we can see than acknowledge our original sin. Racism isn't only part of who we've been. It is in ways we don't even comprehend who we are. It has cut us to our very core, severing our soul Mm -hmm. and our body. Take us a little deeper there. Well, um, I wrote the book because I was sitting at Easter dinner in 2016 across from my grandfather whom I loved and uh, my oldest son who's African American and uh, I don't even know how but they got to talking about politics they got to talking about you know it was the primary season and uh, my son caught wind that his great grandpa might be voting for Donald Trump and he said Pa you're really going to vote for Donald Trump and you know Pa, who, who um, uh, like so many people in rural North Carolina and much of, uh, you know, what we call the red counties of this country, has just been told for uh, decades that, you know, family values or Christian values, and that's the Republican Party. And that's just kind of, you know, the, the, the world he assumed. And uh, he kind of hemmed and hawed and tried to tell you, Michael, that, you know, sometimes people say things they don't really mean and this and that. and it, and and uh, my son looked at him and said, but Pa, Donald Trump is extreme. <laughs> There's just this pause. And uh, I realized that, um, that, there's a, that there's a huge chasm <laughs> between them and the way they uh, see the world that, that has been uh, cultivated and created by people that uh, have invested an incredible amount of money in playing to uh, white folks' fears, um, and I wanted to write a book that uh, that, that tried to uh, dig into where that comes from, and that's really what this book's about. Um, slaveholder religion, as I understand it, is the is the way of framing Christianity that was again uh, paid for and developed by the plantation owners in the mid 19th century when. The abolition movement was making a strong moral case that uh, you couldn't own other human beings and claim to worship God. And, um, uh, you know, on the face of it, there's a kind of obviousness to that <laughs> and, and to the even to the evangelical experience of meeting Jesus and realizing that it changes our relationship with other people that, you know, there's a, there's stories from the, uh, uh, you know, when the first um, revivals were coming through Virginia. Uh, Baptists in Virginia uh, made it uh, illegal in the 18th century for, uh, or, or, or they they passed a resolution within the Baptist Church that that you couldn't be a member of the Baptist Church and uh, and own other human beings, 
Of course, they quickly overturned that when you know these these uh, rationales were developed for why uh, you know there was there was slavery in the Old Testament and it's not exactly condemned in the New Testament and um, and after all you know Romans 13 says you ought to obey the authorities and these kind of things and, and so these ways of reading the Scripture to justify the uh, injustice that is written into the the, the law of a human system. Um, became uh, normal. It became normal for Southern Christianity. And what I think uh, we often don't realize is that that kind of Christianity did not go away after the the Civil War. It, uh, as a matter of fact, dug its heels in and um, preached that the South would have to be redeemed from the immorality of uh, Black folks having political power and in fact, the movement that overthrew Reconstruction was called the Redemption Movement. It's still called the Redemption Movement by historians. And that um, that slaveholder religion that uh, had told the people to just hold on, God was going to redeem them, uh, in, as a matter of fact, uh, felt vindicated by the, uh, the white supremacists who were willing to um, uh, concede to the South for the sake of uh, reconciliation. And who you know didn't listen much to black folks anyway, and uh, and so uh, the the culture of whiteness became very much uh, centered in uh, American religion and certainly in American evangelicalism. So slaveholder religion um, is with us still, which is not to say that you know it's it's all that any particular tradition or Christian beliefs. But um, what I was trying to grapple with in that book is how it has gotten down into us. And, and, and to some degree, uh, uh, it, it has infected all of us. And so I think we need to search our hearts and, uh, and, and search out our theological traditions and our communities and the sermons that we're preaching and the way that we talk about our relationship to one another and to government and to law. Uh, uh, in light of these patterns that were passed down from slaveholder religion. This podcast is sponsored by Campbell University Divinity School, committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to help you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. Curious about what Campbell's mission looks like in action? You should meet Jason Duke. Jason began his journey as a history major at Campbell, completed a Master of Divinity degree, and then he and his wife, Lori, went to Turkey for two years as support missionaries. On their return, Jason entered law school with a goal of providing financial platform for further bivocational ministry and mission work. But God had yet another turn in the journey for Jason. After graduating with his Juris Doctor and passing the bar, Jason entered the Marines and now serves as a JAG officer. Sometimes living out your call takes unexpected directions. How might Campbell help you discover or sharpen your call? Campbell University Divinity School offers Master of Divinity, Master of Arts in Christian Ministry, and Doctorate of Ministry programs in flexible formats that follow students to have a rich face-to-face classroom experience, even while working or commuting to Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. For more information on our master's and doctoral level programs, visit divinity.campbell.edu. I think for a lot of people, when they think of racism of the South, they think of groups like uh, the Ku Klux Klan that terrorized the the black population in the South, along with whites who stood beside the black community. And they lynched, they burned homes, they beat people to death, they hung others. 
And I think for many white Americans, especially those in the South, they, they might say, this is part of our past. We've moved on. I'm certainly not associated with these people or their modern yeah. colleagues. Um, but, but you would say maybe something a little different. Maybe you wouldn't. I mean, how do we, how do we begin to grapple with, it isn't just about these um, very public groups of um, white supremacists and hate groups, but it, it very much is a, a systematic issue. Yeah, I think one way to say it is that white supremacy has never fundamentally been about hate. Um, now, we can't deny and certainly shouldn't ignore that um, uh, extreme violence has been done to defend white supremacy uh, all, all throughout. Uh, I mean, the, the vicious beating of slaves, the, 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 the way in which enslaved people were, you know, Put into the bottom of ships and and in mass thrown overboard, uh, you know, into a grave at the bottom of the sea. Extremely violent from the very beginning, uh, white supremacy has been, and yet, and yet, white supremacy has always fundamentally been about control. And so, um, and so, it's it's quite possible to assume and to even support uh, uh, systems that white people control. Um, uh, without hating anyone, right? Um, you know, Charlottesville happened last year, and uh, everybody, Republican and Democrat, uh, came out condemning hate because uh, hate, you know, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing that people were there, and even, you know, one man was willing to, to kill a woman with his car and injured, you know, dozens of others that he, that he ran over. Um, that kind of hate we can condemn but many of the people who will condemn that hate will still work for policies that maintain uh, the, the the historic systems of white control uh, that that um, uh, have that we inherited in this country. And and so I, you know I think an issue like voter suppression is uh, a more important place to look in terms of uh, whether we're really uh, you know interested in addressing systemic racism than, you know, whether you uh, say that the Ku Klux Klan is bad. Uh, well, sure, the Ku Klux Klan is bad. But what if, what if there are people who have manipulated our voting laws and have gerrymandered our voting districts in such a way that they want to uh, uh, undemocratically hold on to power in places that white people have had power rather than see an electorate that's blacker and browner than it used to be, uh, uh, you know, in a one person, one vote sort of way, change the political landscape. And what if, you know, they never use racial words to say that that's what they're doing, but that that's the reality on the ground. Um, when we challenged the voter suppression that happened here in North Carolina in the um, courts, the federal court um, in the Fourth Circuit said that the law that had been passed had targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. And that was upheld at the Supreme Court of the United States, which by any measure is a conservative Supreme Court. And um, uh, that I think is something that we're not talking about enough in this uh, era when obviously, you know, white supremacy uh, is uh, sort of rearing its head. I mean, you know, every day people 
are sharing videos of, you know, people saying hateful things, confronting people in hateful ways on the streets. And I think most people think that's terrible and, uh, and don't want that to be happening. Uh, most polite Christian people, you know, don't like it when Donald Trump calls NFL players SOBs for, um, for, for kneeling uh, to protest, uh, you know, the violence that's been done to black folks in their communities. Uh, and yet, and yet, the same people who don't like that are often willing to support the politics that keep white folks in power. And I think that's, that's where we see what systemic racism is really about. I remember um, being in North Carolina, uh, you know, what felt like upon the third or fourth time where they were asked to redraw the maps. And I remember people just belly aching that, you know, how, why would we have to go through this again instead of recognizing the intent behind the maps being redrawn is to identify um, the racism that has motivated the uh, the gerrymandering of of citizens. It's um, it's fascinating. So I, I think for so many people, um, they're blind to it. And and you wrote, um, yes, Jesus gives sight to the blind, but we all have to admit our own blindness, even those of us who have pledged to follow Him. So. Mm-hmm. What would you tell local church pastors who who want to do the good work of telling the blind that they're blind? Well, one is that I think we should look in Scripture um, to realize that um, folks who have been blinded, particularly to uh, systemic injustice by power, are not often uh, willing to admit that. Uh, I'll often look to St. Paul, you know, who gets knocked off his horse um, when he's using the power that he has, you know, as a religious figure to persecute the early Christian movement. uh, He doesn't see that what he's doing is wrong, has to get knocked off his horse. And it's really in that moment of, of, uh, of, of, Jesus revealing his blindness to him through, uh, you know, extreme vulnerability that he has to put his hand in the hand of Ananias and relearn uh, what the scriptures that he was an expert in are really all about. Um, I think pastors should be looking for those kind of opportunities to, um, to, to, to help people who have these kind of uh, interruptions in their lives recognize that, uh, that we need to relearn the gospel from um, folks who have not been in positions of of, uh, of power uh, or who haven't been as uh, steeped in whiteness as we have. I, I think, you know, particularly people who are pastoring white folks these days really need to um, uh, gently yet very intentionally be guiding people to listen to black and brown voices in America, black and brown voices in the church. Uh, the crisis of evangelicalism in the United States right now is a crisis, I think, fundamentally of white folks not listening to our black and brown sisters. Um, when we do listen to them, and I, I, you know, I, I'm perfectly aware that uh, plantation capitalism has always been able to have you know, spokespersons who, who uh, are black speak for them. That will always exist. But I'm talking about listening to the community, to the wisdom of the community of people who have suffered. And, um, and as a community, I hear black and brown folks speaking very clearly to their white sisters and brothers that, um, 
not only you know uh, are the the politics of our country uh, extremely racialized right now, but there are issues um, you know happening in schools and in communities that are incredibly racialized and where people feel uh, excluded and uh, and pushed aside, even in, in those places where white folks think they're trying to be welcoming. And so I think uh, encouraging and creating spaces where people can listen to our sisters and brothers who've lived in different skin is incredibly important. Um, I'm a cynic. And for those that know me best, they're wondering why I just stated the obvious. Um, so <laughs> a cynic would say, um, the church will only care about the conversation of racism when the next police shooting or Charlottesville-like incident happen. So the dominant white evangelical culture, evangelical culture will continue to, to ignore the fact that they are blind to such systemic crisis. So what can we do um, to not wait for the next media-covered injustice to happen? What can we do today and tomorrow and next week to help the blind to see and to do the hard work of seeing the radical justice message of the gospel transform the world? Well, um, you don't have to wait long for crisis in this country right now. Uh, we are in the midst of a moral crisis. If you listen to black and brown people in your community, you will hear it. And one of the ways I'm encouraging churches to be attentive uh, these days because the uh, agenda of white nationalism, the agenda of America first, is specifically uh, anti-immigrant and determined to uh, execute that through the zero tolerance policies of this administration. Uh, now, that's not just about separating families at the border. That's about really a wholesale attack on the immigrant community that's been happening since the beginning of this administration. And one way that churches are becoming quite familiar with this is uh, that churches are in a unique position to offer sanctuary to people who are being separated from their families by ICE. And churches that have uh, opened their doors and welcomed people into sanctuary, so people who, who ICE is trying to separate from their families, comes to the church and, and they stay there uh, to be under the cover of sanctuary while the community makes an appeal on behalf of those folks. These, these people are, are getting a rapid education in what it actually means to be an immigrant in this country right now. Um, I think that's one very concrete way that churches are being introduced to the reality of systemic injustice by the people who are experiencing it. And I think that that can be a kind of model for any church to be involved in, to, to simply look out in the community and ask, you know, who is bearing the brunt of the systemic issues, you know, systemic issues of, of poverty, of lack of access to health care, of, of uh, you know, immigration issues, um, whatever those uh, uh, issues are, where is it bearing on people in the community and how can the church listen to those people and to their, uh, not just struggle for justice, but struggle to survive in order to learn from them um, something of what it means to uh, stand together and, and just uh, uh, be people who care about one another in the midst of this crisis. What would you say for would you say for those that um, they're coming home from work today 
Um, they're getting their kids ready uh, for dinner. They're, they're going to put their kids down. They're exhausted from the day who think that I, I don't have really anything significant to give to this conversation, but I want to make a difference. Well, I say um, have the conversation with the kids at the dinner table because the kids are already living in the America that white people can't imagine. Uh, I think that's incredibly important to realize. Uh, white folks are uh, one among many minorities in kindergartens in America today. Uh, our kids are not growing up in a white majority culture um, for the most part. And uh, they often have uh, much more exposure to and, and just practical understanding of, um, you know, what's happening to Maria or Juan in their class or, you know, uh, Jaquan or uh, Jamia, you know, it, they're, they, if we listen to our kids, as the scriptures say, you know, a little child shall lead them. Um, I think that's what's so important about the leadership of these high school students, you know, who have experienced gun violence in their schools uh, and just in the past year have begun saying, uh, no, actually, we're going to we're going to organize because the the uh, systemic racism that has kept extremists in power uh, in state houses and in our Congress um, is not only hurting, you know, one particular group of kids, it's hurting all of us because, you know, we can't get basic legislation to ban assault weapons. Um, and, and, and the reason is that the, um, the power that's been consolidated uh, really, you know, over generations by white power um, is, is really locked in through these uh, efforts to uh, water down the vote, gerrymander people into power <clears throat> and these kind of things. So, so I think, uh, uh, again, you know, you can have a conversation at the dinner table every night that begins to transform the way we understand what's happening around us. I love the fact that if I was to ask you what's next, I know that you're not going to give me some next big book that's up on the horizon because each day you are doing the work literally in your home and in your vocational calling to, to help bring transformation to this world. So, so what is next for you? Well, I'm finding a lot of hope right now by being involved in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Uh, we just finished 40 days of, of collective action in state houses all, uh, in 40 different states around the country. And um, a lot of that is about bringing uh, awareness to the way systemic racism and poverty and ecological devastation and our war economy have been propped up by a false moral narrative where you know people uh, sort of easily and without much uh, uh, even attempt to defend it say that it's christian or moral to uh, support policies that uh, that exacerbate all four of those areas that I was just talking about so um, uh, that's a movement that's being led by poor and impacted people and that's building coalitions in 
these 40 states uh, of people who are really trying to educate their communities about how we've really uh, misframed, uh, and, and, and you know, this isn't like just a, uh, an accidental mistake that folks made. Like I, like I was saying earlier, this has been extremely well-funded, uh, but we have been lied to uh, in terms of what the moral issues are in the public square. And so this is a campaign to try to to try to shift the public conversation, to try to say, if you if you want to talk about, you know, being a Christian in public in America, if you want to talk about morality in the public square, then we got to talk about how poor people are faring. We got to talk about how the children are doing. We have to talk about um, uh, immigrants because our Bible tells us that we have to remember that we too were once immigrants. So we treat all immigrants fairly and even as citizens, Ezekiel tells us. So, so this is a, a what I'm doing these days and what's given me life. And I would encourage people to learn more about it. Poorpeoplescampaign.org is the website where you can learn more. For those that want to follow Jonathan on Twitter, it's at Wilson Hartgrove. You can also visit his website, jonathanwilsonhartgrove.com. Jonathan, thank you for, thank you for the good work of helping the blind to know that they're blind and leading them to the Christ that will give them new eyes to see each person as a valued and beloved child of God. Amen. Our God is gracious and has been gracious to me. I'm happy to, I'm happy to invite any and all to come and receive the love that's possible in the beloved community. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pens to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 